Fragmented, an Android developer podcast where we talk about building good software and becoming better Android developers. I'm Don Felker. And I'm Kaushik Gopal. Welcome to episode number 10. All right. So this is a very special episode, Don. Do you know why? Uh, probably because we made it to 10 episodes so far and because we have a great guest on as well. All right. So we have our very good friend and long-term supporter for this very special 10th episode. Uh, welcome to the show, Michael. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So what are we going to talk about today, Kaushik? So basically, in the last few episodes that we've talked about, there were, in fact, two topics. Uh, one was Android Studio and the other was in testing. And I believe in both, we sort of alluded or maybe added links to Michael Bailey's talks because Michael Bailey Mm -hmm. is just amazing at almost every topic under the sun. So what we thought this time we'll do with this episode is sort of go in depth to another topic that he's amazing at, and that's basically on core Java. So for people who are interested in sort of pointing up their core Java skills, today would be a good episode to listen to. Definitely. I think today's going to be a great show. I know I've spoken to Michael many times. Uh, Michael's actually local to me here in Phoenix, and he has uh, spoken at the Phoenix Android group out here and uh, is, has a ton of knowledge in this space. So I guess the top right into it. Uh, before we uh, get really into the Java content, uh, Michael, can you kind of tell us basically a little bit about yourself, maybe where you work and, and what you do and so forth? Yep, definitely. Um, I am an Android engineer at American Express. Um, I work on our main uh, U.S. Uh, consumer app. Um, so it's the it's the one that you can um, get get if you have a consumer card. Um, you know, check your bill and use your points um, to redeem transactions and many other cool things in there. So that's kind of my day-to-day um, job. I actually started that um, app as uh, I, the original developer back in 2010. So wow. I don't know. Uh, so I've been working on that app for um, about five years now. So it's gone through a lot of change and Android's changed a lot and trying to keep that app up with all the uh, the um, different build systems and things like that. There's been um, been interesting to see the code base evolve over those years. I know I've told this to you already before, Michael, but uh, American Express has one of the most amazing Android apps. I was the very first time I actually used the app. I was kind of surprised. I didn't even expect that level of quality from like, you know, a credit card company because I didn't think it would be that important for them to have a good app. And also because I guess historically most of the credit card apps that I have are like terrible. So American Express is an amazing app. So good job there. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah, we, uh, it's definitely a very important uh, to Amex, and one of the great things is we have a, a great design team too. It's very meticulous about the detail that they go through, and they keep us developers um, on point with making sure um, we we hit all the details correct. So, having a great design team, I think, is just makes Android development uh, that much more enjoyable. Working at Amex, the challenges that you face uh, specifically for developing in Android. Uh, do you have any special sort of constraints because you work at Amex? Like maybe with like, you know, credit cards, there's like this thing that's that's a little special to the credit card field that isn't for most normal Android developers. Is there anything along those lines? Yeah, I mean, it, it, so Amex has a lot of different apps. Um, on my particular app that I, that, that I work on, we don't have like the camera in our app. So I know you guys have touched on that. That, that can always be a, a, a challenge. We do have other apps that have... Um, um, the camera, which is not really specific to Amex, but I know anytime um, 
I talked to somebody who has to put the camera in their app there. They um, lament about uh, all the different hardware options that they have to support. Ah. Um, I'll say one thing that uh, you find in its it, it, uh, of a product requirement um, that you uh, you'll find in credit card apps is that you have to keep the login session short. Um, which you don't find in a lot of uh, other Android apps. And actually that um, sort of inactivity timeout um, when the user's not using your app and trying to figure out what to do um, uh-huh. is not, it's something that uh, takes quite a bit of work. It sounds like a simple thing, um, but um, getting that right in all sorts of scenarios if the app's backgrounded, um, what happens if the process dies, what happens if they, you know, um, do they back out of your app? Did they go to the home screen? Did a phone call come in? And trying to make sure that you do something that's not um, too surprising to the user in all those um, scenarios mm-hmm. uh, is pretty um, can be pretty challenging. One of the things I came across the when you in specific we use RxJava, so specifically when you're using timeouts in RxJava, mm-hmm. uh, when the CPU goes to sleep, all of the timeout um, APIs uh, object.wait, thread.sleep in Android are all based on CPU time. That time doesn't seem to pass. So when the CPU comes back awake, it doesn't think any time's passed and the timeouts don't happen, um, which probably is a, you know, a concern for other um, things if you're using the timeout-related stuff in RxJava. But um, there is an API in Android called uh, systemclock.elapsedRealTimeNanos, yep. which gives you um, uh, wall time, but uh, or real, you know, real time, and it's monotonically increasing, so you don't have to worry about the user setting their clock back and things like that. It always progresses forward. Mm-hmm. The challenge is, is that there's no uh, API to simply wait and wake up based on that. So all of the ones that let you wait are based on the CPU being awake in that timeline, whereas you can pull the time, you can say, what is the real time, elapsed real time? But there's no thing that says, wait until this elapsed real time um, uh. comes about. So you have to get some, you have to get some, um, get creative there to, uh, uh, to make that, that work. You can use the alarm uh, manager API to set a pending intent to happen at a specific um, time, but that will wake up the CPU uh, which is kind of probably why there's nothing that waits on real elapsed real time because right. your process is not awake maybe. And so waking it up, it has to be a system level thing to wake up your process. So if you really need to do that, you can use the alarm thing to send a pending intent and wake up your app. Of course, then you're waking up the CPU. So it better be something that's important to the user that, that you know, that you're using up extra battery by waking up the CPU for just your app's needs. Um, so it, it's definitely, it's, it's seemingly, seemingly simple uh, product requirement, but uh, it can definitely have a lot of edge cases. It's one of those. Uh, it's one of those features where you look at it initially and say, "Yeah, that shouldn't be too bad." And then a week <laughs> and a half, two weeks later, you're still working on it, kind of thing. Exactly. You're like, oh, five minutes, one timer task, and job done. <laughs> yeah. So we have a something new, interesting came out at Google I/O this year, and that's that's Android Pay. And seeing that you work in the basically the finance area, uh, similar to that I, I do at this time, um, what what do you think about Android Pay? What do you what excites you about it? Is there anything that's that's interesting? Do you think it's going to be a game changer, or is it something that's just kind of a you know a, an additional play that Google's making to match what Apple's doing? What's your thoughts on on uh, Android Pay in general? 
Yeah, so I was, I mean, I was at Google I.O. And to me, I personally was excited to see the Amex card art in the, key, in the keynote. You know, um, it's always nice to see uh, your brand in the, in the keynote. Um, Very cool. But overall, I think I, I've been using Google Wallet, so I'm excited that Android Pay doesn't make you launch the app when you want to tap to pay. Um, you can um, just tap to pay and then authenticate, whereas before, um, Using Google Wallet, you had to open the app um, and you know uh, enter in a PIN and things like that. So it was, you know, you had to get ready um, to be able to to tap there. Does it, it work nice. similar to Apple Pay now in that you don't have to open up the app? Um, I actually haven't used any Android Pay. I've just seen what they had in the <laughs> keynote. So, um, okay. yeah, but that that I think is what they said is that you will be able to. Um, tap without opening up the app. It's an OS level thing, ah, okay. um, I think, which will be uh, be much appreciated. And one of the nice things about Apple Pay uh, going first is when you when you used to use Google Wallet, or when I used to use Google Wallet, the, the cashier would often give you a strange look and be like, what are you doing? <laughs> don't, don't do that. Just swipe yeah. your card. <laughs> right. And now people don't give you as weird a look because they're used to um, Apple Pay. So the, the one nice thing about Apple doing that is now at least cashiers don't give you that strange look and think you're trying to do mm -hmm. something um, uh, really odd. So, Are you trying to hack my system, son? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, tapping your phone is no longer just a weird uh, uh, tech thing that, uh, that only tech people do. And that's all based on, on NFC uh, for the listeners that, that aren't aware at this time. Yep, definitely. It's, uh, it's, uh, Apple Pay is based on NFC payments. Android Pay is based on NFC payments. Even the existing Google Wallet is, is based on NFC payments. So I've heard basically that right now, even at locations that accept Apple Pay, you can basically just use Google Wallet's NFC thingy and do payments. Is that true? Have you ever tried that? Yep. Yeah. So it's it's uh, the it's more accepting. So if you accept American Express NFC payments, mm -hmm. then, you know, it Apple Pay or Android Pay or tapping your piece of plastic um, shouldn't matter. So okay. all of those will work. It all it, it all goes over the same technology if they accept American Express NFC payments. All right. So we're going to try to switch gears a little and touch on some of the other topics that I know both Don and I are super thrilled about and want to ask you about. Mm -hmm. and the very first one is obviously Android Studio. Now, you are sort of like this super... Super ninja. amazing ninja. <laughs> I was trying to like find an adjective for ninjas, and I'm like, what do you add on to a ninja? You don't add any adjectives to a ninja, right? <laughs> I saw this uh, tweet uh, recently, and I, I wish I could say who tweeted it um, to give them credit, but uh, they said that uh, they should apply for a job where they say, "Oh, we need a you know a, a software ninja," and then <laughs> um, you know not show up the first day, and they're like, well, "Why didn't you show up?" And they're like, "Exactly." <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that tweet. That would be oh, that would be an amazing troll on the company. <laughs> All right, so Michael, how long have you been using Android Studio? Or I should I should sort of like ask, how long have you been using IntelliJ? So I think I started using IntelliJ at version 2.5. Whoa. Um, what? <laughs> and I think e, the 15 EAP just came out. So I, <laughs> I uh, yeah, I guess it's been about 13 versions or so um, that I've been using IntelliJ. It's, it, it was great back then, but it, it definitely gets better every version. And, you know, the amount of just 
with that many versions, a lot of products can degrade or they can kind of mm -hmm. lose their focus over time. But I, I think it's just gotten better and better. Um, so then which that great. means, I guess you weren't doing Android development all the way uh, since version two, correct? Uh, what, what was your was your background in just traditional Java development? Yeah, so before Android came along, um, and actually when I started American Express, uh, my primary uh, focus was uh, Java development. Um, at some point, I did some Swing development and some, you know, I have some server-side experience, uh, experience and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but then I got into, when Android came along, um, it was an opportunity to do some UI programming, which I enjoy, and uh, use Java. Um, so it was it was just a great uh, great fit, and um, so I, I really dove into that when Android came out. Nice. So you're obviously a veteran at this point. Are there any sort of uh, favorite plugins as such in Android Studio or certain extensions that you feel that we should be using? Um, I think the one that comes up often is uh, the Key Promoter plugin, that if you, uh, if you are not familiar with the keystrokes, that is really one of the main PowerPoints uh, that gives you a lot of power in uh, IntelliJ is to know the keystrokes. So. Mm -hmm. If that helps you learn them, then use that. Um, otherwise, just print out the keystroke guide and keep it um, next to your keyboard and uh, force yourself to use it. Um, I don't use that one anymore. It is pur on purpose uh, kind of annoying. I mean, that's the whole purpose of it is it annoys you into uh, using it. Uh, and you know, maybe I should go back to using it. I'm sure there's plenty of keystrokes uh, that I don't, that I still don't know, um, but. Uh, yeah, it's, that's that's a great one, and I I think that that's really in any environment. I think uh, you can get a lot of productivity gains by really understanding um, all the features. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. like all the different refactorings, all the different editor features, and things like that, and then also the keyboard shortcuts. So you're not constantly moving your hand back and forth between the keyboard and the and the mouse. So for, for people that aren't familiar with what Key Promoter is, it's something I also promote heavily in all my talks. Uh, Key Promoter, like Michael's saying, is very annoying. It's, like you said, purposely annoying. Uh, and at a high level, let's say that you consistently click on attach to process inside of Android Studio and you do it once, twice, and maybe around the third time, what happens is this plugin knows exactly what you're doing saying, hey, you keep clicking this button. Uh, by the way, there's a, a keyboard shortcut for this. Use this keyboard shortcut. Or if there's not a keyboard shortcut associated with it, it'll say, hey, would you like to create a keyboard shortcut to do this? And it's in, insanely uh, annoying to the point where you just w don't want to see the message anymore. So you start using the keyboard shortcut. So I highly recommend it as well. Okay. Yeah, and there's another one. Uh, it's not it's not a plugin. It's actually built in. And it's one of the things I talk about in my talks. It's called the productivity guide. It's under the help menu. And that productivity guide will tell you which features you use most often um, and which ones you've never used. So it's a good thing to browse through and be like, what is this feature? I've never heard of it. And then go look up the documentation and kind of maybe take a couple of weeks and practice using that to see if it uh, can boost your productivity. So, um, and then, you know, it's also just interesting to see stats because people like stats on, on what you use. So usually you're like, oh man, I've done code completion, you know, 40,000 times, which, uh, um, you know, can show you the, the, the power of, um, of knowing those things. So one thing that I would love to, to bring up here with the, the, the keyboard shortcuts, uh, is one I actually learned from you, Michael, at your talk, I don't know, I think close to six to nine months ago here in Phoenix. 
and it's one that you showed me, which is inside of Android Studio, uh, you can use Alt plus Up, and this is using the key bindings for 10.5 plus, and that will select the current, uh, you know, the current word, and then you can select it again to go to the next section and, and, and so forth. Um, I use that so much now that when I hop into other text editors like Sublime Text or even inside of Google mm-hmm. Docs, I'll press Alt Up and it doesn't work, and then I get annoyed because <laughs> I just want it to work. So that's, that's been a huge productivity boost. Yeah, I love I, I love that uh, shortcut. It's it's basically syntactic select. So it um, d- the great thing is it works across file types. So whether you're in Java or XML mm-hmm. or JSON or JavaScript, IDE is uh, IntelliJ is smart enough to know the syntax of that file. And when you press Alt Up, it increasingly increases the the scope of what it's selecting based on the what it knows about the syntax of the file. So it, it's very good about selecting kind of that, um, the just the exact right chunk that you want to um, move or refactor. Right, and it also goes the opposite direction for listeners. So you can hit Alt Down and it will like decrease the scope as well. So that's super helpful. The last little bit here on the whole Android Studio IntelliJ thing. Uh, if for those that aren't familiar, uh, JetBrains is the company that helped creates uh, helps create IntelliJ and Android Studio and so forth. The they actually have a bunch of other products. So if you do PHP development uh, or Node or Ruby or Python, they have IDEs for each one of those, and I actually use uh, almost all those IDEs. All of these keyboard shortcuts and usually all of the plugins work inside of all of those as well. So uh, just a quick tip. So if you hear something you like and you're like, hey, I'd like to apply that to my Node development, you know, you can find the plugins for that and the keyboard shortcuts like Syntactic Select also work inside of those as well. Yeah, I'm, I would say I'm a bit of a JetBrains fanboy, but <laughs> part of part of my requirement for any technology that I'm probably willing to work on is that they can I do the development not on Windows, and can I <laughs> and can I do the development using uh, JetBrains product? Those are kind of two requirements for me even looking at something that I might want to develop with. That's a those are those are good heuristics, and I think <laughs> I think that transitions perfectly into kind of what we should talk about next, and that's that's testing. And I know that you're very passionate about testing. You've given a talk around talks uh, here in Phoenix and m- numerous other places, New York, uh, Silicon Valley, and so forth, if I remember correctly, about testing. Um, and I know that recently. Uh, Google had acquired a, a company called Apurify. Uh, are you familiar with that at all? Yeah, so they announced the a Purify acquisition, or at least I became aware of it at Google I.O. in 2014. So they said, hey, we've acquired a Purify, and we're going to you know, keep it around and make it awesome. Um, and I think in 2014, they said that they were going to keep the iOS support for it. I don't know if that's still the case. Um, mm-hmm. But then you didn't really didn't hear anything for about a year. <laughs> but then at 2015, you know, and it was one of the things I was really hoping that they would give an update on, and they did. Um, they've rebranded it and uh, as Cloud test lab um, and kind of relaunched that um, uh, relaunched some of this stuff that they had acquired and it um, again I still haven't gotten access to it so I'm super excited to get access to it um, well, I think you know, it's I think still in beta or something I mean, I'm, I'm not even sure it's released to the public just yet you can go and sign up and give your email address and in a standard Google form there they say oh we'll let you know as soon as we're ready to release it to the public Exactly. Yes, and so I'm I'm very excited um, to get early access to that. But um, yeah, the, so I think a Purify was based purely on hardware devices. So they had a cloud of physical devices plugged in um, that you could run tests on. Um, but from what I gathered at I/O, uh, 
they now have, in addition to the capability to run on real hardware devices, uh, they also have what they call virtual devices, which they were careful to distinguish between a virtual device and an, um, the Android emulator. Right. So apparently it's, um, and I, I don't think there's a ton of details on it yet, but it sounds like what they've done is they've taken the Android OS and compiled it to as if they're Google um, Cloud instances, their x86 Google Cloud instances that are independent of Android, oh. were, were a device. So they basically said, we have a new device, which is a cloud instance in Google, and let's compile the Android operating system for that and just run it directly um, there. Mm -hmm. So um, in theory, that can, I mean, it sounds like that would probably give you a good performance boost. So I'm, I'm very interested to see how that, uh, how that works out, because the ability to have a very um, predictable testing environment um, where uh, you can spin these up very quickly and shut them down, I think would be very valuable. Um, we oh. do uh, in-house, we have a whole farm of Jenkins servers with real devices attached via USB. And that's, it's a lot of management. I think one of my coworkers calls it device whispering. <laughs> um, <laughs> where you have to go and unplug things and replug things and reboot devices. And, you know, we've automated some of that, but, you know, mm. it's hard to, um, there's always some issue you run into and somebody's always, you know, on hip chat saying, Hey, can you just pull that device off the machine so that somebody can take a look at what, what the problem is. And really a lot of these devices were meant for consumers and not meant to be running apps 24 seven, um, on your CI build. So sometimes the, the uh, devices just don't hold up. So well is the, the focus on cloud test lab more on like a CI kind of service then? Because if they're using these virtual devices, right? I thought one of the advantages with having these kind of cloud test labs is you can sort of uh, run your app across a multitude of like different devices, uh, devices that you otherwise wouldn't purchase, uh, you know, uh, a single, yeah. you wouldn't purchase every single one of them. So I thought that was also part of the value, but it seems that isn't the focus or, are we just not sure yet? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. It sounded like that they would have, it didn't sound like they were going to have like hundreds and hundreds of different types of devices. It sounded like they would have, um, you know, I don't know, more in the tens of numbers of devices in terms uh -huh. of physical devices, and then this virtual device um, cloud. And then they also announced an integration um, with uh, the Play Store where, um, they'll be kind of running um, their own, it's kind of like a smart monkey type mm -hmm. thing. So they actually analyze your view hierarchy and look for places that are clickable and things like that. So um, as opposed to the monkey, which just sends random input events and who knows if it's clicking on anything real, I think what they have, uh, I forget if they called it smart monkey or something like that, um, you know, as part of Cloud Test Lab, they have something that's a little bit smarter about clicking through um, your app um, in, in in a random uh, fashion and trying to hit all the screens. Mm -hmm. And I think they actually provide some sort of output where it actually shows like, hey, here are the screens we were able to get to in your app when we were just trying to click around randomly with this um, thing. And I think there, that part will be free as part of the Play Store where you can submit, you know, if you submit through that, maybe the alpha channel or something, then they'll run your APK through this um, kind of smart monkey mm -hmm. type thing that they have. So definitely interested in learning more and hopefully um, more details. Um, I'm sure there'll be a lot more details when they uh, announce it. Right. 
you know what I think they should call the they shouldn't call it like you know the smart monkey they should either call it monkey 2.0 or my other brilliant name is maybe chimp you know like chimpanzee <laughs> or something you should work in a marketing department Kashuk I know right <laughs> I have these amazing ideas mm. what am I doing here <laughs> <laughs> All right, so just to wind up uh, with uh, testing, with it, like I know there were a couple of other great uh, I.O. sessions on testing, and it was nice to see the focus on testing this time at I.O. Did you pick up anything else uh, from the I.O. sessions, uh, Michael, or uh, do you think most of it is already available? No, so there was, a, there was some good sessions that I don't even know that they were recorded, and maybe they'll come out as dev bytes, but um, the Espresso sessions, they actually announced a new version of Espresso, in those sessions. So they had Espresso 2.2. I think, I can't remember if it was an add-on or if it's core to the core Espresso, but they announced, as part of 2.2, they announced uh, WebView support. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so you're able to test things within your WebView. So that was... Um, a godsend. That was exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, uh, we, we kind of have our own very lightweight, very um, crude home-built thing for doing some UI tests with WebViews, but uh, I'm looking forward to being able to uh, use the, the their version of WebView testing so that we don't have to maintain our own internal ones. So. I guess now we should uh, drop into the main topic. Clearly, we've been very brief, only 20 minutes in. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about core Java. Now, I know this is something that's always uh, interested many of our listeners. How does one really get better at pure Java development? And also, is it important to be a really good Java developer if you're going to be uh, working on Android all day? Yeah, I would say that it, it's super important. And I would say it's also one of the things that in my experience interviewing people that I will find people who know Android, but they are more often weak on their core Java skills. Um, so I would say that that's, and, and usually I find that you know core Java skills are the more important thing in Android APIs or something that you easier to learn over time. But if you don't have that fun, uh, foundation of pure Java um, knowledge and how things work, then Android is going to be even that much more difficult. I mean, there's a lot of difficult things that you have to understand and uh, just annoyances you have to get through in Android. But if, if you're also battling a lack of knowledge of mm -hmm. core Java, it's going to just, it's going to be pretty frustrating. I think that's uh, dead on the spot. And, and a lot of people will come from different languages too. Um, so they'll bring some of their knowledge over here that doesn't maybe apply to Java or to Android in general. And so having those core concepts down are, are key. The One of the big ones I see right out of the gate uh, initially that, that I've noticed in interviewing folks and dealing with other developers is just the, the basic concept of composition versus inheritance. And I think maybe we should talk about that a little bit. Maybe kind of what does it mean? Uh, you know, because we kind of know that inheritance, uh, you know, you're going to inherit something, a class extends something else, but we also have things like interface inheritance and so forth. And, you know, so we have that whole topic of composition versus inheritance. Which one is better than the other one? Uh, do you have any thoughts on, on inheritance and composition and, and so forth, Michael? Yeah, I think it was uh, I think it was in the Gang of Four book, um, if I remember correctly, that they say prefer composition over inheritance is yep. one of their uh, uh, their oh, pieces of advice. Was it the Gang of Four or was it Defective Java by Joshua Block? I think it was Gang of Four. Interesting. Okay. I know Effective Java because, like, again, like many of these tips are some things like that I've uh, mentioned, and both are amazing books. Listeners should absolutely. We'll add links, obviously, to both books in the show notes. Uh, 
effective job by Joshua Block. He talks about like these sort of bullet points, like they call them items or something. And The Gang of Four obviously is a book on patterns. So just to give listeners an idea about what those books are. Yeah, and I, I find Effective Java uh, very readable, um, whereas Gang of Four um, seems a little more dry to me. I actually haven't gotten, <laughs> gotten, gotten through the whole thing. But Effective Java, it's like, um, you know, maybe it's just the nerd in me, but it's one of those books you just want to read the whole way through because there's, it's very approachable, um, very um, practical, um, and you can get through it. And you know, there's a lot of great stuff in the, um, the second edition there. So, yeah, that's one of my, it may be my favorite tech book is uh, that, Effective Java, um, definitely a great recommendation. Um, right. So they say favor composition over uh, inheritance. So could you give us like a little better idea on what that is? Yeah. So when you so in in Java, in, inheritance of implementation is single inheritance. So you can only inherit. Well, it, it kind of changed with Java eight because now you have default methods. Um, <laughs> right. so you can you can inherit some implementation from interfaces and you can inherit multiple interfaces, but um, most people are not um, using Java 8 for uh, for Android development. So, Sigh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is a, which is a bummer. Yeah. So without default methods, you get a single inheritance of implementation um, and it becomes part of your public API. So when you inherit something, um, the inheritance hierarchy is part of your public API. So especially if you're exposing something um, as a library, um, that's something that people may uh, depend on. And if you change it, it's definitely a breaking change if you change um, the inheritance hierarchy. Uh, the other thing is, so because you can only have this single inheritance hierarchy, um, it's really hard to compose different things. So you, if you try to compose different functionality, you can end up with trying to uh, with a combinatorial explosion of all possible combinations of the things mm -hmm. you want to compose together. So I remember, um, like in RoboJuice, I think they have like, you know, Robo list fragment and Robo Mac fragment because you want to compose both the RoboJuice functionality that you're inheriting plus the inheritance of list fragment or yep. whatever, right? So mm -hmm. then you you've got to combine all these things. And now if you want another type of list fragment that also inherits the RoboJuice things, you have to have a new combination of these things. And now uh, also if you have your own internal things that you need to have across multiple fragments or activities or whatever, you now have to have those in combination with all of the other things. So um, in terms of being able to compose a different things, uh, the single inheritance definitely uh, will limit you. So if you use composition, meaning it can be more of an internal detail of your class, um, depending on how you um, you would compose those things. So if, if you take them in the constructor, um, then depending on how you do dependency injection or if you have static factory methods, it may be exposed in terms of what you depend on um, because people may have to pass in those dependencies um, into your class to instantiate your class. Um, but also you can have it as an internal detail where it's like, I use one of these things because I need um, list functionality, but it's not part of my inheritance hierarchy so that you can mix and match more um, easily where you just have uh, references to these various pieces of behavior that you need inside of your class. Um, and then you can mix, um, compose those inside of your class uh, in an easier way that you don't kind of get this crazy inheritance hierarchy with all sorts of um, 
combinations of various uh, functionality. Absolutely. And one sort of uh, situation where I've also found it tricky is, for example, when we talk about inheritance, essentially what we're talking about is if one class extends, if a subclass sort of extends a superclass. So if you have functionality that changes over time in the superclass, then that basically means your subclass like depends directly on that because it extends the superclass. So that sort of adds this like fragility. But if you've used a composition kind of pattern where you actually have like an instance and you compose the characteristics of the superclass inside, then that gives you that little flexibility to be able to like sort of not get affected by the functionality of a superclass. And I think uh, Effective Java has some great advice on this um, this type of thing as well. And I think what they say essentially is if you have a class and you design it for inheritance, then make sure you document yes. that it is designed for inheritance, how you should inheritance, inherit from it, what things you need to know. And if it's not designed for inheritance, then you can, should consider making the class final so that people don't accidentally inherit from it. Because if you yeah. change something in the super class and it's not explicitly documented and the person who subclassed your class makes various assumptions on, on parts of your super class, mm -hmm. then now when you change your super class, you break all the people who extended from it. Um, so it's a very, yeah. um, Continuous relationship between the superclass and the and, and the subclass. I have a photographic memory, so I remember it's on page sixty-one, item fifteen: design and document for inheritance, or else <laughs> prohibit it. What wow. you, you don't believe me? <laughs> I was kidding. I, just, I pulled up the <laughs> I pulled up the book and <laughs> I just read it. You out. have a bookmark in it, I know. <laughs> Yeah, and the great thing about those things like item 15 or whatever, you know, the item is, they're great for code reviews because, you know, it's, you could say, well, you know, in item 17, it says this, so it can kind of, if there's a discussion, usually you can settle on, well, let's just do it that way because we know it's, uh, it, it meets our meets our needs and it's fairly well accepted advice. I don't want to go into a code with you, Michael, man. Wow. <laughs> do you shame, Michael, do you shame them? They're like, read this chapter and not even give any other comments. And then when they read it, they're like, oh, man, Michael just tore me apart. <laughs> no, we try to be, uh, we, we, we try to be uh, very kind in our code reviews and, and more of a mentoring opportunity. But, and honestly, I get uh, um, a lot of value out of people reviewing my code. So, at our, at our company, you know, the the most junior guy gets to review the most senior guy's code. So it's it's and and vice versa. So it's it's very uh, it's a good thing, and you learn you can learn a lot from other people's experience that way. Every one or few days, like I, I keep looking at the code, I'm like, which idiot wrote this code? This code is terrible. You shouldn't be doing things like this. I do a blame, and I'm like, oh shit! I'm like, oh wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, that, <laughs> that goes back to another really nice IntelliJ feature is that if you context click or right click in the gutter of your editor, you can say show annotations and it yep. basically shows you the, the git blame or whatever mm -hmm. subver or subversion um, blame of who wrote what line, when, what change it was part of. So yeah, often I'll open it up and, you know, I'll see who wrote this and then uh, you know, <laughs> I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> so the competition versus inheritance uh, is kind of compounded inside of Android because we have a lot of things in Android that like you said, you brought up the topic of robo-juicing, robo-list activity, robo-map activity, robo-activity, etc. cetera. Uh, and the reason those things are there is because we need the same functionality across these various different activities. And just recently, the app compat delegate wa was released. Uh, 
And I found this very interesting because when I first looked at the code, uh, it allows you to have some type of delegate that you can use, you know, inside of different activities uh, or, or various other locations if you really wanted to. Uh, and when I looked at the code, it almost felt like they, uh, they being Google, were looking directly at the code from MyFitnessPal when I worked with them and the engineering lead or the Android engineering lead, Eric Burke there, wrote almost the exact same thing and we called it the MFP activity delegate. Uh, so this was so we could share all of you know the same type of code across various different activities. Do you guys do anything or do you have any recommendation around that? So if I have a list activity, a traditional activity and so forth, do you do anything so you can perform the same callbacks without uh, duplicating code all over the place? Do you have anything like a delegate that you use? So I don't know if it, it addresses that specific situation, but what we end up doing is we use um, we use Dagger a lot. Yep. So in our in our current um, implementation, we use Dagger, and then we usually at the top of our class we will have a list of injects and, um, and with activities because you can't do a constructor injection, it's um, field mm -hmm. injection or in your fragments, um, and those are kind of your reusable pieces of um, functionality um, that you can kind of mix and match. So um, I would say that, and we have, you know, basically our super class just knows how to make sure that um, things get injected. So that's kind of the code that we have at the top level is that if you extend from this fragment, you can, you know, know that things are going to be injected at the right time. And so you, then you can just very easily saying, oh, well, for this functionality, I need these three things. So I can at inject, at inject, at, at inject, mm -hmm. and then um, mix and match. Um, you know, in there uh, as you're composing your logic for that screen. But one tricky aspect towards uh, this whole, and the reason I like, I like app compat delegate so much is because one of the problems with, uh, for example, if you use different versions of like the support library, there was a uh, fragment activity, then there was action bar activity, then there's mm -hmm. just the normal activity. And now you have app compat activity. I like app compat delegate because it, allows you to sort of use your own base activity. And this is, again, a good pattern that most people should follow. You should have like a base activity for your own code and uh, have like the logic that's sort of more specific to your application in that base activity. What happened with the app compat sort of uh, change that was brought in is that you also have to extend app compat activity. The what makes it difficult with these kind of activities versus any other superclass is that there's uh, the life cycle is important, right? And it becomes very difficult to sort of like compose multiple activities and still adhere to the life cycle. Yeah, no, I think um, I, I think that having the having the logic and the as much as you cannot um, can separate out things from the inheritance hierarchy, I think you're going to be um, in a much better place because not all of your fragments, activities, whatever you're using are going to need all these various um, combinations of things. So if you try to have a super activity that has, does everything that every screen in your app needs, I mean, that's going to be um, very unwieldy. So if they try to have some super activity that has all of the support library stuff, right, mm -hmm. in the inheritance hierarchy, plus all of your stuff, I mean, it's just going to, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it's going to get very complicated very quickly. So one good thing to do is basically make the machines work for us, right? <laughs> so it, considering this aspect, 
there are certain tools that would help you basically write better Java code. And this is usually uh, along the lines of like static code analyzers. So does uh, do any of you want to jump in and sort of like let our listeners know what exactly are static code analyzers? Yeah, so one thing I'll, I'll say up front is that one reason I like Java is because it's statically typed. So you right. know at compile time what the type of things are and you don't have to wonder at, you know, is this an integer or a string or whatever at runtime? And, you know, so that, I mean, that gives a lot of power to the static analysis tools um, and to the IDE in terms of being able to do refactorings and the IDE being able to tell you things. So static analysis tools are tools that look at your code before the code is actually running, meaning the code is uh, its not dynamic, it's static, it's just sitting there, and it's able to look at your type information, look at all the various things that are available at compile time, and point out common bug patterns, things that you may want to do differently. Um, so uh, we use, in particular, we use CheckStyle. CheckStyle is mainly focused on making sure that your code uh, meets some you know, is formatted according to the rules that you give it. So it's configurable. You can give it check style rules. Um, so we kind of have this thing where uh, we have a, a code style setup for IntelliJ that we yes. can all use mm -hmm. um, that roughly as close as it can reflects our check style rules so that you can tell IntelliJ or Android Studio, please format my code and it will keep the code formatted according to check style. But then we also run check style just to make sure um, on our CI servers and any check style violations that aren't explicitly mm -hmm. um, ignored uh, will fail the build. So it, because um, if you don't do that and you just let warnings crop up, then you know you kind of get this uh, broken yeah. window syndrome where it's like, ah, there was already 50 warnings. What's 51 warnings, right? So we right, try to right. keep it at zero. Uh, we keep it at zero check style warnings because um, we run that before you're able to merge um, your commit your your PR um, stash won't let you merge unless all your builds pass. So, so that's a question uh, I had. Are you is it not possible to sort of match the check styles and like the IntelliJ code style? Do they have to exist independently, or is there a way that we can sort of point them yeah, to just one place? I mean, I would. I don't know. I we actually, I think Square is open sourced their IntelliJ code style mm -hmm. um, plugin. So ours is based off of that. It's not exactly the same. And then I think um, some of their open source projects may have check style files in there as well that kind of match that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one good place to start. I don't know of any tools that kind of add, um, keeps the two in sync. So if you change one, mm -hmm. you kind of have to make the corresponding change in the other. Um, mm -hmm. Since IntelliJ is open source, it seems like somebody could you right. know, rip, at, rip out some of the part of the code style thing and, and make it a little bit more seamless rather than than right. having to manually sync between uh, the two different uh, set of rules. And one thing you can do with IntelliJ is basically you can right-click a folder and apply your code, st code style to the sucker like completely at, at the global level. So if you want to just like run like a reformatting kind of process for like your code, you can just like go ahead and do that. People may not be very happy because you're essentially touching every single file, so your Git history is going to look crazy, but... <laughs> just i mean like if you want to like sort of have like this intervention kind of point where you're like <laughs> all the code is going to follow this code cell then you can just go ahead and run through that yeah do it across the board and then after that once you kind of get it in good shape there's an option in in intellij to just 
reformat the text that is changed in the VCS, so reformat VCS change text. So it oh. will look like here is the text that you have changed um, since, you know, in this commit. Um, so only reformat uh, that code. So it, it really avoids the problem of having just a bunch of formatting related, related things in your, in your Git commit. Right. And also one uh, built-in sort of static code analyzer that's extremely powerful and that everyone should absolutely use is the Android Lint in itself. So Android Studio comes with uh, the Android Lint, and essentially what it does is very similar to the things that we've been talking about. There's this nice blog post that I ran across, and it's by Vincent uh, Brisson. Bryson? I'm yeah, probably pronouncing that wrong. Sorry about that, Vincent. But there's this nice blog post where he talks about how you can integrate many tools, the Android Lint, CheckStyle. There are some other ones called FindBugs and PMD as well. All these are essentially static code uh, uh, analysis tools. So he talks about how you can in integrate that with your Gradle build process. So you can have like a task that essentially runs through like all of these uh, code styles before you even want to commit or something. So we'll add a link to that in the show notes. I thought it was very good. I actually added uh, find bugs alone. I haven't added check style because again, like we mentioned, I don't want to go the code style check style sort of like discrepancy makes me feel a little worried, but, <laughs> but find bugs I thought was amazing and I could catch some things. And what's nice about these tools is it's not, a super dumb sort of like, oh, well, do you have like a bracket or you do, do you not have a bracket? It actually adds like suggestions to improve your Java code. So definitely everyone should check that out. Two quick announcements with uh, that regard. One is Facebook recently open sourced. Uh, Facebook has been like on this run where they're open sourcing a bunch of things. So that's 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 a good uh, step. They, they have this tool called Infer and it's open sourced. So people, if you're interested, you can have a look at that. Uh, and also there's this article that our good friend Dan Liu uh, pointed me towards. And it's by John Car uh, John Carmack. And for those of you who don't know, John Carmack is basically like this demigod, amazing programmer. If he says something, you should definitely just listen to what he says. He now works on uh, at Oculus. I believe he's the CTO at Oculus. So there's this article where he talks about static code analysis. And this guy is like a crazy good developer, right? And if he says, well, you should be using this as much as possible, as often as you can, then you should probably listen to him and sort of like try to incorporate that. We'll add a link to the show notes. It's amazing. It's always so much fun listening from people like John Carmack. Yeah, I definitely agree that static analysis is very important. And we try to, as much as we can, um, make all warnings errors just so that we keep it clean. So for Android Lint, find bugs. If you create something that it doesn't like, it's going to fail the build. So I, I highly recommend that you um, uh, make that a policy on your CI server. Now, speaking of failing builds and almost failing applications, um, let's move on to one of the next topics, and that's garbage collection in Android. Uh, I think this is a topic near and dear to many Android developers because the beautiful out-of-memory exception that gets thrown. <laughs> of which um, Don is a big fan of. He has hey, like this black card called OOM. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, and I think you are the president of that company working at a camera-based uh, startup. So oh. <laughs> you've, oh, probably, wow, yeah. you've probably seen it a lot more than I have. But uh, I did spend, in the Absolutely. early days of Android, a lot of time dealing with um, out-of-memory exceptions and then having to really hop into the garbage collector inside of Android and recycle bitmaps and all kinds of different stuff. Um, 
Now, inside of the garbage collection in Android, one of the topics that's always been brought up is we should avoid creating too many objects. Do you know why that's said, Michael? So any object that you create, especially if you're creating a lot, it's going to have to be um, garbage collected. And especially on older, on well, on Dalvik and older, they didn't have the moving collector so that if you created a lot of these objects, it would go through and, and, and clean them out, but it would leave, you know, I guess a fragmented heap. It would leave a bunch of holes in there, so then you'd have smaller holes where it would have to try to figure, if you have a bigger object, it would have to try to figure out where to to put it. It's gotten better with art because art will actually move your memory around to make space for, for bigger objects. But um, really the thing, um, the biggest problem that you'll see on Android, I think, is that garbage collections, um, especially on Dalvik, can take uh, five milliseconds, ten milliseconds, and if you're trying to have a smooth app, they, you know, Google always talks about this 16 millisecond barrier, where at least on the main thread, you want to be able to draw every frame in 16 milliseconds. So if you're giving up five to ten milliseconds for a garbage collection in there, um, it's going to skip that frame, and essentially it only draws once every 16 milliseconds. So if you skip one frame, it looks like you're going to notice it because really the next one's not going to be drawn until about 30 milliseconds. So, um, you know, if you have too much garbage collection in there, it's going to make your app janky. So this is like an established computer science concept. It isn't something that's specific to Android. Uh, I mean, it's something that's like it works with the JVM, right? As I understand, there are different kinds of garbage collections, right? So mark and sweep. The mark and sweep collection is a common pattern for doing this. Uh, so the move, you mentioned the differences in like moving collector between Dalvik and Art, but do they both use the mark and sweep sort of uh, strategy for garbage collection? I actually don't know the exact algorithms that they okay. they move. I mean, that's a pretty uh, or that they use. That's a pretty common one, and I mean it's at least on the J on desktop JVMs you can pick your garbage collector. You don't really get that choice on. Um, you know, and you can profile mm -hmm. your app with different garbage collectors. On Android, you're stuck with, you know, the one in Dalvik or the one in Art. So you have to, you can't pick the garbage collector to fit your app. You have to change your app to fit the garbage collector that you're given. Right. There's a really nice I.O. talk that was given a couple of years back on like the whole garbage collection sort of process. And they talk about how it's actually done. So they have like this graph uh, where you basically traverse down the whole graph and then you notice any allocations. And if there are like certain objects that haven't been allocated, they just like dump them. So that's essentially like, that's like the one minute explanation of what garbage, <laughs> the market sweep garbage collection is. We'll add a link to that uh, in the show notes because that explains it in detail and I would say the important part is to really understand what keeps something from being collected. So the yeah. GC root, meaning that, you know, that the top of this thing that it traverses, it starts at one object, it looks at the references and so on and so on. Um, and when you're troubleshooting memory uh, problems, you need to be able to figure out why is this thing not eligible for collection um, you know, if you're getting it out of memory and then trace it back to a GC root and be like, well, and figure out where along the chain is something keeping a reference to something else mm -hmm. uh, that it shouldn't be. And they in recently introduced um, in Android Studio 1.3 uh, a much better UI in Android Studio itself uh, for tracing back um, these references to the GC roots. Uh, and I think you guys also mentioned on a previous podcast the, the Leak Canary um, tool from Square, 
um, that will also um, help point you to these problems. So there, it's getting a lot easier to troubleshoot these things than it used to be. It used to be you had to take a, a heap dump, and then you had to run heap dump convert mm -hmm. to make it a Java heap dump, and then you had to load up Eclipse um, memory analyzer tool and, and look at it that way. So it was multiple steps um, to figure it out. So it's definitely um, getting a lot easier, um, and hopefully will continue to. And just to be clear, with Art, the new compiler, the garbage collection is way better. That doesn't necessarily mean that you know you're free to just start allocating more objects. These are unfortunately constraints that you always have to sort of keep an eye on. And while the garbage collection is improved, it hasn't sort of like eliminated this process altogether. So you still have to be a little conscious, and uh, that's why. It's, we're going to go into some of these good Java recommendations and a common pattern that you'll sort of find throughout is that, oh, well, this is a good Java pattern to follow. But on Android, you don't necessarily have to do it this way or you shouldn't be doing it this way. And the reason we brought up the topic of garbage collection is it all goes down, it boils down to that allocation procedure because you have such a constrained environment, you basically can't go whole hog and keep allocating objects, even though it would make it clearer, it would make the code clearer and sort of more uh, readable. One uh, topic is mutable objects and immutable objects, right? And again, this sort of boils down to this concept of like creating objects, uh, creating more objects versus not having to create more objects. Now, as I understand in general programming, they say mutable objects are a good thing, right? It's always good to have, mu uh, oh, sorry, immutable objects. To be clear, mutable objects are objects that are mutable, which basically means they can change. Immutable, immutable objects are objects that can't change. So in Java, string, for example, is an immutable object. So once you create a string, you can't modify the string. The only way you can do that is by concatenating it and creating a new object, uh, for the new value. Can you explain that a little bit? Because I think most introduction developers don't understand that. I mean, because if I create a string and it says first, string first name equals Don, and then I say first name, or in the, or just say name, string name equals Don, and then I, a couple lines later I say name equals uh, name plus Felker. Uh, to me, I look like I'm just changing the name variable. So what are you saying is happening? So essentially what happens is when you say string is equal to Don, like when you create your first string uh, saying string is equal to Don, then mm -hmm. that's it. Like, you know, if you have D-O-N-N, -N, that's only the, the loud number of characters that you can have on the first string object. Now, if you do this, but it doesn't seem like that because you can always just do like, you know, Don plus and then a Felker, yep. right? The, what actually happens in the background is uh, like you have Don one string, you have Felker the second string. It actually recreates a new string of the size it computes the size of both Don and Felker and creates a new object, assigns both of those values to that object, and then sort of like uh, appears like it's just one object. So really you're creating a whole new object. You're not modifying the existing uh, string. You're not modifying the existing Don string. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So it creates this new object. And because it creates a new object altogether, uh, that's again like sort of not looked at as a good thing in Android. Now, there are a bunch of qualifiers to this. So the way you avoid this is basically using a string buffer. So if you use a string buffer, which is another sort of data uh, construct, it allows you to sort of like, it's a mutable form of uh, string. Now, I know, again, so <laughs> the problem is, I think JVMs have gotten super smart at this point. So 
the, it was like a sort of recommended practice to not do string concatenation like with the plus sort of characters but i think after j like jdk5 or something this is actually inherently done like so what the compiler does is it sees a string concatenation and it's like oh i know this is a string concatenation and it swaps it out in the background with a string buffer is that right michael yeah so i mean the compile and it, again it can depend on the compiler and the um possibly even the runtime, I suppose. But you can, um, if you're doing just like one time, not in a for loop, then I think, you know, plus is probably fine for most situations. Where still, even in the most recent versions of Java, I think you still have to be really careful is when you're doing a plus equals um, of a string. If you have a string and you oh. plus equals mm -hmm. in a for loop or in some sort of loop, then that loop becomes n squared in terms of, um, the final string, you know, that you're in, uh, and it has constantly recreating strings, copying strings and recreating strings because every, you're adding on every time through the loop to a larger and larger string and the strings getting larger every time through the loop. So every time it's a larger copy and a larger copy. So, and I think this is one of the things that they touch on in effective Java is that specifically plus equals of a string in a loop, um, is I think going to be quadratic um, in terms of the amount of uh, memory it takes up. Yep, makes sense. Now, kind of moving on from from that topic in general, I think one of the big things in, in Android is just understanding basic data structures. And the one question I have for for you, Michael, you've been doing this for a long time in Java. How important is it for developers to under understand just the common data structures? And, and what would you say maybe the, even the top three data structures that you see used in Android development are right now? Yeah, I think I mean using the right data structure for the problem you're trying to solve obviously can um, can make a huge difference. You want to make sure that it's something that's not using more memory than it needs to. It's not doing too much allocation. Um, but another really important thing too is if you're sharing data across threads, um, getting getting concurrency right is very hard. Um, and a lot of the default ones, um, you have to do your own synchronization around them. So those are kind of the things you need to think about when choosing a, uh, a specific um, data structure. Android does have some data structures um, that are specifically made for Android to be more efficient. Mm -hmm. um, so array map and I think a simple array map mm -hmm. are uh, data structures where normally you can use a hash map, but for most cases, if you're only putting like, the, if the most things you ever put into a data structure is five or ten things, then a hash map is probably overkill. Right, and an array map can be much more efficient. So why um, is that internally? Yeah. Like, why why exactly does that happen? So in a in array map, um, you can if you, if you know it's a small number of things, then you can just keep things in a simple linear data structure, and you don't mm -hmm. have to worry about kind of the big O um, of it because your your in is small. You're only going to have ten things, twenty things. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter if you're um, on a linear type algorithm versus a constant time algorithm, mm -hmm. whereas hash map is very optimized because it can give you constant type o, o of one um, operations right. um, across large um, large sets of data, um, but that comes as a, a constant overhead. So for very small data sets, you're still paying that constant overhead um, when you're ne you're never going to put you know thousands of things in the map anyway. So using something that can just 
um, allocate a fixed um, amount of memory or fixed array and put things in those buckets and not have to do hashing and things like that can be much more efficient if you know ahead of time that the data that's ever going to be in that data structure is going to be uh, relatively small. Exactly. And I think that's like the key point there. Like the hashing algorithm that's used, you don't necessarily have to go whole hog with it. And I think the folks at Android will like came up with array map so that it's sort of a very lightweight implementation of hash map. It must be said though, like uh, Michael pointed out, if you have like a whole bunch of, like, if you have an extremely large number of items, at that point, you probably shouldn't be using array map. But more often than not, I don't think people are going to hit this case, uh, at least on and the I, client side. And I think uh, just a general advice is any time you're picking between data structures, you really want to measure. I mean, if, if yes. it's going to matter, you want to measure before you, you pick something. If it's not causing you problems, then you just want to go for the most readable code, right? Right. Absolutely. How would someone uh, that's not familiar with measuring, how would you measure the, the impact on memory and so forth of a, a particular data structure? So it's a it's interesting with Android, right? Because you can some of these Android um, data structures are only in the Android SDK. So if you want to measure with those different ones, you're going to have to run it in some sort of um, Android instrumentation. Um, I think there are tools that you know, and micro benchmarking is I think a hard thing to get um, to get right. There are some tools like Caliper, um, and I think a tool called Bogar that allow you to if you, if you have a specific algorithm or specific flow through a data structure and you're trying to, and it's impacting your performance and you want to do it, you can use those things. And I think Vogar will actually run code on an Android um, instance for you so that you can do micro benchmarks if you want to do it at that level. Um, if you are uh, at a kind of more um, higher level in Android, if you just want to load up your app, there's things like Allocation Tracker. Um, that can show you where things are being allocated. So if you think mm -hmm. if you're allocating too frequently, or if things aren't getting deallocated, that'll help you um, analyze that. Um, so it it really depends on what you're trying to measure. But the Android provides a lot of tools, um, and then there's a lot of tools specific to just um, Java that you can do micro benchmarks. But I would say always start with the most readable code, okay. and then um, if you find yourself running into problems, then measure first. Um, so that you at least know if you're making things better or worse by any changes that you make. Golden advice there. And I guess like the important thing to also understand is like these data structures, like uh, there's array map, there's simple array map. These are Android API specific, which means you can't use that in pure Java code. So that's one reason that I, like I always try to use like the most generic, uh, the most readable form, like from like the core Java APIs. And only if there comes a point where I'll have to sort of optimize, will I try to switch these data structures? When, when I'm reading most code, uh, be it I walk into a new client or open source code, I, I have to say the most common data structures that I see out mm -hmm. there are going to be hash map and array list. Uh, and array list probably mm -hmm. it hits the top of the, uh, of the, of the uh, list there in general, pun not intended. Um, <laughs> now, do you guys have any issues with the array list? Is there anything wrong that you see with the array list? Is there anything you need to be careful about? Or is it kind of just a general use list in your opinion? You know, I want to say, I think I heard somewhere, and I, I haven't actually confirmed this with the source code, but I think maybe it was a array list or maybe I'm thinking of hash map, but the Android data structures actually, when you and instantiate them the default capacity, meaning until you before mm -hmm. you even add anything, the default capacity I think it's smaller. It may be actually zero in some 
bots where you say new, I can't remember if it's array list or hash map, where you say new array list, mm -hmm. and by default it gives you zero room in there, so it doesn't allocate any memory, which is good oh. if you're not going to need it. But if you know, like, I'm always going to have at least five things in there, you can, um, in the constructor to array list, you can pass a five. So it knows, like, okay, I'm going to start with five, because I know you're going to at least have five, so there's no use in starting with zero and having to reallocate later um, to give you five. So mm -hmm. I would say that, um, yes, array list can be um, great for, depending on how your, your usage pattern, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's great for, um, uh, random access. If you need to access the int thing, you can just um, in a constant time operation, you can look up and set the int thing in the in the array. Um, so it really depends on matching with your access, your read and write patterns on the uh, on the list, and, and which one's going to be most efficient. Quick okay. follow up to that uh, question, Michael. So the initial size that you provide. So an array list is basically an expandable list, right? So you can keep add, like it, it will automatically resize itself to accommodate the number of objects that you provide. The initial size that you provide, is that also, so in the background when it expands, does it also use the same initial size that you provide to expand? So if I say 10, does that mean it'll add 10 more elements as you get close to the full, uh, the size of the array list? You know, I don't know the, I mean, that's it's definitely an implementation detail and in, in Android might do it different than desktop Java, but um, generally people, you know, the, the probably start out at doing some sort of like, um, you know, uh, doubling it every time you need to expand. But uh, okay. because it's on top of arrays, which are fixed size in Java, it has to allocate and copy everything that it, every time it needs to expand. Right. So even if you can avoid one or two expansions of the array, um, you know, it might be optimizing in a place that you don't need to optimize anyway. So again, me measure first, but it, it can be something to, to look at. Homework for our listeners. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So another general sort of uh, recommendation is like, yeah, there are these cool data structures and objects, but really if you can get away with using primitives, if your requirement uh, is sort of fulfilled by just using primitives and by primitives, we mean like int, uh, long, boolean, short. If you can get away with using these without the object forms, then absolutely always use that, right? And the reason we actually say that you should not try to avoid objects is because, again, this is go this goes into sort of like uh, core Java and like the amount of memories that's allocated to each of these sort of uh, constructs, right? So for boolean, it's basically one byte. A character, a uh, char, C-H-A-R, or short it occupies two byte now this is good trivia i like i, I like i always like uh, popping this question so short there's something very interesting about short that most of us android developers should know so a short is essentially two bytes right so that's 16 bit so one byte is basically eight bit and so if you have 16 bit the maximum number that can actually be stored in a in a short is basically 65,536. Does that look familiar to you guys? Hmm, it seems like maybe that's the, uh, the the limit on the number of methods you can have in a single DEX file. Yeah. Da -da -da. <laughs> and that's actually <laughs> the reason you hit that limit. So people don't uh, generally understand why. I mean, like that seems like such a bizarrely weird number to choose in terms of like a maximum <laughs> uh, method number uh, count. And yeah, the so truth is, I mean, yeah, it, it isn't like a random thing. It's a very specific sort of number. 
Yeah, and I think specifically in the DEX file format, when you have a DEX bytecode, it says, you know, invoke this method. And then there's a table of methods at the top that lists all the methods that can call in that DEX file. And each method has an ID. And the field that holds the ID is 16-bit. Is so when you're saying call this method yes. in a Dalvik <laughs> bytecode, you're saying call the method with ID 1234. And literally in the table at the top of the DEX file, you can't list more than 65,000 methods because there's only um, you know, uh, 16 bits there to give it method IDs. Right. It's kind of funny, right? I mean, the, the reason like such a big constraint is sort of like put on us developers is because like the data sector chosen there was a short. It's kind of, yeah, it makes me chuckle sometimes. The first time I saw it, I, I saw the number 65,000 and I remember back to the college days and I thought, I'm like, wait a second, that number <laughs> looks very familiar for some reason. I go look up, you know, the, the limits on the on the primitive types and I'm like, oh, there it is. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I see the problem. Yeah. And the difference between char and short, at least practically, is that a char is uh, signed where a short is unsigned, or vice versa, actually. Right. So right. short is a short is un short a char is unsigned, I think, and a short is signed. Maybe I got that mixed up. But that's that's the main thing. So the the values you can actually uh, store yeah. store in a char and a short um, are are slightly different because one can have negative numbers and the other can't. Yes, uh, so you, you don't have it memorized, Michael. You didn't you didn't make the interview. Sorry, uh, <laughs> get the position. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's short is because all of, everything I think except char is signed. signed so I think char yeah. is the only unsigned thing. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, like along the same lines, int and float basically is four bytes, long and double is eight bytes. And here's the interesting thing. Anytime you use an object, so it doesn't matter what object it is, any object that you use in Java, there's a certain amount that's allocated towards just housekeeping. Because if it's an object, then you have to construct the object and like you should actually know how to sort of like organize this object. And so eight bytes is just simply allocated to the object like without any sort of like so even if it's a boolean object so there's the boolean primitive and there's the boolean object the boolean object in itself just for housekeeping it has eight bytes and then because it contains a boolean primitive inside the object it has an additional one byte and you may think okay cool so that's nine bytes right no it's actually not nine bytes because this thing is again byte rounded and this is done because uh, I don't know, Michael, you can maybe like correct me, but my understanding is that like in the, it just makes it easier to sort of like read from the memory if you have like a sort of rounded, like a byte rounded sort of it, it, accessing each of these from the memory is easier when you have it byte rounded, right? So instead of nine bytes, it's actually Yeah, I think, it, I mean, and it gets, it's about at the limit of some of my knowledge, but I think it might have to do with how the processor does, um, you know, byte alignment has to do with how the efficiently a processor mm -hmm. um, can access things in memory. So if it's byte aligned, then the, the memory reads um, are more efficient. Um, but I, yeah, I think the how much it takes up is, is somewhat uh, dependent on the JVM implementation or the Dalvik or ART, but yeah, it, it can definitely be more than more than you would think. So the next topic is basically on loops, iterators, and you know, all that jazz. So a Actually, on a very recent episode of ADB, Chet Haas, you know, Chet Haas, the troublemaker, <laughs> the constant troublemaker. Uh, <laughs> so he, he basically talked about this in detail and like uh, he noticed this weirdness in the way the for each, uh, uh, the for each, the enhanced for loop, as it's called, 
uh, is used. So we'll actually add a link to that. But uh, basically, the TLDR of that whole sort of conversation is that you generally want to use uh, the old-fashioned for loops where you specify the size and not the for each syntax unless it's for an array. So there are like mild quirks to this. So we just want to point listeners to this. Uh, in Android, they always say it's better. And the reason is because the for each loop, in addition, it always uses like an iterator object. So even if you have like an empty sort of uh, array list and you run a for each on, uh, you run the enhanced for loop on this array list, even if it's empty, it is going to have a single allocation for the iterator. And then it'll look at the iterator and say, oh, I don't have any elements. So you're sort of like wasting like a whole allocation there. So we'll add a link to the uh, to this, to that episode. And it's it's kind of interesting because he talks about how like when you actually have, when he, when he's, he was checking the allocation tracker for animations, he noticed using the for each syntax like took a mild hit. So what else is interesting in the land of Android and quirks with Java? I think the one thing that uh, you, you bring up Chet in the recent uh, Android Developers Backstage episode, and he talks about avoiding enums. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for myself, and I think Kate, uh, Kashik, you're the same way, is that you never really like this rule. Yeah. I mean, you can get around this with, you know, now using the, uh, the int def annotation. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, in my opinion, it's, it's all right. It's an okay work around it. Um, I think it's a throwback for me from coming from a different language where we use enums heavily uh, to help specify different types and so forth. And most companies I, I consult with still use enums quite heavily, uh, but now it's kind of being advised to not use them. What are your thoughts on this, Michael? Do you agree, disagree, or how do you feel about it? Yeah, I think that this, I mean, they've had various performance documents over the years on the Android developer side, and I think this one has been there on some performance document out there for quite some time about not using enums. I've always ignored this rule, um, mainly because I think enums can, they can avoid a lot of uh, uh, programming mistakes, um, you know, and they have um, some really good properties. It's if you If you read the first edition of, uh, of effective Java, they had a chapter on type-safe enums, which is essentially the pattern that got baked into Java in 1.5. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just, it, it can avoid a whole class of uh, potential bugs in your code. So to me, if the, you know, if we have an app that performs well enough and it makes, you know, it does what the user needs to do and adds value to the user, um, whether or not I use enums at the end of the day is is not my is not my biggest concern. You know, mm-hmm. making sure that I don't have um, random fragment lifecycle crashes and things things that impact the user more is where I spend more of my time. If I get into some drawing code and I'm trying to do, draw a special widget and I notice that it's janky and um, it looks like the enums are causing the problem, then yeah, I'll, I'll rip them out and and try to see what I can do to make it more efficient. But I try to, um, you know, we, we're always trying to figure out ways to deliver more value to the to our customers faster, right? So if I can write simpler code that, you know, when I come back and read it in three months that I can understand it better, you know, I'll, I'll always go for that first and then, you know, measure and optimize if I run into a problem. And I think Chet mentioned in, in that podcast that, you know, the framework team has different concerns because their code runs exactly. on every device inside of every app. So a little performance improvement that they can make has a huge impact 
um, across the entire Android ecosystem. So I think it's a bit of a different problem, yep. um, you know, but it's definitely all of these things are good to know about when you are having jank in your application and you need to go figure it out. And, you know, it's in a critical part of your application that's going it, to gonna really bug the user. Then that's when I think the time is to go and, and apply all these knowledge. But if you don't have all these knowledge, you're just going to be looking at your code and being like, I don't know how to make this faster. So it's good to know all these things. I agree. It's um, developer productivity and maintainability of a, of code in a code base for a team is is huge. If for some reason the productivity is taking a hit because we're using integers and it's slowing the release cycle for some weird reason, uh, then we need to evaluate our, our development practices because we're probably not experiencing that many problems. Uh, I'm in the same boat as you. Uh, I was just recently developing a custom view and had some jank and, and moved a few things around. So uh, good points on that. The golden rule is always code for clarity, always to begin with, and then start optimizing later. Now, speaking of that, uh, optimize later and code for clarity, one of those big things is uh, I see sometimes is to avoid, I see people saying avoid nulls inside of your code. You'll see this all over the place, even in the framework says, hey, pass in null and you'll get the default uh the mm-hmm. default setting, uh, or sometimes you'll get a null back from a cursor or something like that. And so what I've learned to do in Android and almost all of my development, any language now is just, I just assume everything I get is going to be null. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then and just figure out a way to handle that inside the code, perhaps an error message, perhaps a dialogue, a retry, something of that nature. Uh, and that has reduced the crashes that I've encountered significantly. Now, Michael, what's your thoughts on on nulls in general? Do you are you someone who returns null if certain things happen, or do you use like the uh, the empty object pattern or or anything of that nature? What's your thoughts on it? I'm I usually when when it makes sense try to use the null object pattern where you know for example if you have returning a list from something rather than returning null when there's not anything you return just an empty list. Um, and you can, in that case, you can be more efficient by calling like collections.empty list, which will yep. return a pre-baked thing and you don't have to allocate a new list necessarily. Um, so there, are, I always prefer to keep nulls out of my code. What's the advantage of doing I think that it makes, it, for me, it's just easier to understand the code rather than have to look through all these null checks everywhere. And, uh, you know, in Java, I don't think you can get away, <laughs> away from that um, entirely, but in areas you can, um, you know, I, I think the at nullable and at non-null um, annotations are, are very valuable. Oh, yeah. So you can say, like, this thing might be null, and then you know if you need to check for it or not. And things like find bugs and other static analysis tools can say, like, hey, you called um, a method on this object, and we know it might be null, so you need to check for null first. Or you can say non-null. And then when the method returns um, something, it can say, hey, you said this method was non-null, but you're now returning something that might be null. So you might be crashing people who are calling your method. So giving those hints of non, uh, null and non-null can um, help the static analysis tool tell you where you need to check for null um, and not. But that being said, when it makes sense, um, I definitely prefer the null object pattern. If I can have an object um, even just a dummy implementation of an object, if it makes sense, where the implementation does nothing, um, and I can just call through the methods, um, and you know it will do nothing. Now you have to be careful about that because then sometimes you think you're doing something and you're calling a null implementation, um, and it's not doing anything. But I generally tend to prefer that over having um, having null checks everywhere. Um, and I think that's 
I'm not super familiar with Kotlin, um, but I think that that's one of the promising things to me in Kotlin is it has optional uh, nulls as part of the type system. Um, and uh, in the type system, you can say this thing is an optional. And then if it's an optional with a question mark after it, then you know whether or not it could be null and the other, otherwise the types can never be null and things like that. So I think that uh, the concept of null built into the type system with optionals is, is a very uh, powerful concept. Right. And the other huge advantage is that basically it's not an additional case you have to account for, right? If you, like, if you reply, if you return an empty object, then you can just consider it as like a normal case. We, there's another topic that's out there that's kind of heavily talked about is uh, anonymous inner classes. Uh, some people use them all the time. Some people say that they're bad. Um, and you'll notice even in the example code, a lot of times you'll see listeners that are inlined as anonymous inner classes. Um, and we don't have the luxury of, of Lambda expressions just yet. And so if you are using things like RxJava, you have to use either just a traditional uh, JDK 6 stuff, which you do anonymous uh, inner classes, or you, know, you can create an instance in your, as a field somewhere, uh, or you can use Retro Lambda. What are your thoughts, Michael, on anonymous inner classes? Do you use them? Are they bad? What's your, what's your thoughts in general? Yeah, I mean, they definitely... They definitely have their place, um, but they can definitely they're definitely a source of, of memory leaks. I think because you do have uh, the concept of uh, the enclosing instance. So if you have a inner class, and it's kind of the difference between an inner class versus a nested class. So nested class doesn't have a reference, um, and that's when you put the static keyword in front. And an inner class has that reference to an enclosing class. So if that enclosing class is an activity or something that else that references an activity, um, you potentially now, uh, and, you, and then you pass that anonymous instance to something that's long-lived, like it's a, an observable in RxJava that never gets unsubscribed, or um, you pass it to some other part of the Android system that's going to hold on to that listener um, or that uh, inner class. Now that inner class has a reference to your activity, and your activity can't be freed, so then you, you have a potential memory leak. So they're, they're, you, you have to use them very much, um, very much with care. Um, I find most of the time you can pass in, so you, sometimes you need access to certain things inside of your um, this callback uh, that you're passing to RxJava or other things. But if you explicitly add it to the constructor of that callback, then at least you know where you're having references to, mm -hmm. and you don't have this oh. sort of um, invisible uh, reference to the enclosing class. So if you're like, well, I need a reference to this thing and that thing, you know, sometimes you need a anonymous inner class that, or not an anonymous inner class. Sometimes you need a class that has a reference to an activity. But if you pass that activity in as an explicit parameter, at least it makes it very clear to everybody that I am holding on to an, a reference to this activity, and I meant to, and I'm really hoping that I get unsubscribed, or I'm doing something to make sure that you know this thing doesn't live around forever with a reference to the activity. So making it more explicit by having static nested classes and passing in the state that you need into the constructor of that static nested class can make the code a lot easier to reason about and a lot less likely to have hidden mysterious references that cause memory leaks. One trick that I use with IntelliJ in my color formatting, you can specify for anonymous NL classes like it to be styled a little differently. So I basically style it with like a red font color and italics. So anytime if I'm like browsing through code or looking to someone else's code and then 
that just like pops out and like especially on android like if i see that then i know like okay this is something that i have to be a little more cautious about so so that i think was super useful i learned and picked a bunch of things from michael thank you michael yeah i learned a ton as well it's it's been great having you on the show we really appreciate it thanks for having me it's been a lot of fun i've been a, uh, a listener uh, since the beginning and it's a, it's a great a great podcast you're a good man michael it's time for the awesome picks of the week so um i think there's a quite a few here um let's change it up a little bit this time michael why don't you go ahead and and go first and let us know what some of the awesome picks uh, of the week that you have to share with the listeners are yep so uh, one of the things that i try to do is even though it's it breaks up my uh, development time and it's slightly a detour is when I find tool uh, bugs in the tools or even things that I wish, oh man, I wish it had done this. I file a feature request or a bugs on the Android tools tracker and a number of things have gotten fixed. Um, features have gotten implemented over time. You know, they have a lot on their plate, but I would highly recommend people um, if you think uh, uh, that they go onto the bug tracker and file things, because if you noticed it, the chances are that if you file it and it gets fixed, you're helping lots and lots of Android developers. Yeah. Um, the one thing I will note, and there's a, the link that I have, is that they put up some advice on filing bugs. So when you file a bug, there are specific logs and specific things you can attach to the bug report and information that will make sure that they pay attention to that bug report. So a good quality bug report, mm. um, I, in my experience, the tools team will pay attention to it and they will try to fix your issue. Um, you know, uh, they have limited resource, so it does take some time um, occasionally, um, but they're very good about getting to your issues if you file a proper bug report. So take a look at their guidelines for how to file a bug. And, you know, if you think of something, don't just let it slip by, file it, provide the information they need, and you'll help all of us Android developers out. Fantastic. Um, another link I have is a list that went up. I think Jake Wharton created it um, uh, or at least he linked to it, uh, about a list of Android conferences. So there's a lot of them out there. Um, various ones are in various stages of call for papers. Um, and it's good to, it's a great list to know um, what, what ones are coming up and which ones are asking for speakers. So if you're interested um, in trying to do an Android talk, um, you can apply to the various ones and, you know, maybe your talk will get accepted to uh, one or more of the, the conferences. So that's a great list there. And uh, going along where uh, with the conferences, there's another conference that doesn't seem to be quite as well publicized, but they just announced the, the, this year's version of it, and it's the Google Test Automation Conference. Um, I went for the first time in 2014. Uh, if you're interested in testing, it's a great conference. Even if you don't go in person, um, they live stream it, and they post a lot of the talks afterwards. Um, so it's not Android-specific. Uh, they do a lot of automated testing across a lot of technologies. Um, sometimes there is some Android talks. Um, there, but it's just general good advice about how to automate your testing. Um, so take a look at the, the Google Test Automation Conference. And my last link is something I think we touched upon before, and, and Chet Haas talked about it on the recent Android um, Developers Backstage uh, podcast, is, uh, and they announced it at I.O. as well, is the whole set of Medium blog posts about developing for Android. So. Uh, what they did is they went and talked to the framework team. They kind of consolidated all this advice about um, things you need to think about or should be aware of, like don't use enums and um, memory and um, network and things like that. Um, it's good to be aware of them, even if you're not going to apply all of them to your code. Um, it's just a good collection of advice 
especially if you're new to Android, to just go read through that stuff and it'll catch you up on you know, a couple of years worth of uh, Android advice that has mm -hmm. come out in bits and pieces. It's all collected in one nice spot. So definitely check that out. Yeah, they are, I guess, at this point on like the ninth uh, sub post, or, like the ninth post or the ninth article, or I guess, if memory serves me right. Amazing. That, yeah, that's just like an amazing introduction. Chet Haas, always a troublemaker, but you know, the good kind. <laughs> All right. So going <laughs> for my picks. You know, it is my nefarious plan to always somehow mention Rx Java in each of these episodes. We managed to do that even without <laughs> my awesome pick, but I thought I'll just put this in again. There's this library that's surprisingly not as well known as uh, some of the other Rx libraries, and it's called Android Reactive Location. This surfaced up, I guess, on Reddit at some point, and I thought it was like really cool because people know that dealing with the location APIs on Android is kind of a little messy because it's it's hard like you have to like listen for location updates you should have like a location listener and then you have to unsubscribe but someone went through the trouble of sort of morphing the whole thing into an rx like pattern so you can basically use the same uh location apis from google but in an rxe fashion so i thought that was super cool so i'll point everyone to that in the show notes the next a recommendation that I have is actually an app and the app is called One Today and it's over uh, from the folks at Google. And what it basically does is it allows you to donate, give donations to various charitable organizations. And I think it was very, it's in the days of Holo, it was like a very well done application because, and the concept is very nice. So every day it'll pop up uh, a push notification saying, hey, these are some of the causes that you said you were interested in. Uh, would you like to donate a dollar or maybe donate uh, $5 and we'll try to match your donation with other people. So I think if you're not someone like Bill Gates and uh, you don't have the flow to sort of like give that much money, it's just a very nice application. And because it's from Google, yeah, there's some trust that they would have vet some of these organizations. So I thought that was a very nice app. And in case people haven't heard of it, you should definitely download and look it up. And my last is basically an article. I know many a time uh, when you talk to Android developers and it comes up in conversation, the whole legal battle between Oracle and Google and what's happening with Java. One of my colleagues, uh, Dan Perez, recommended this to me and I thought it was really good. It's a sort of nice take towards this whole controversy that's going on between Oracle and Google. So it's an interesting read and especially if you're talking to other uh, developers who are sort of interested in this topic. It's always nice to have some information on the subject. So those are my three awesome picks. All right, for me, uh, I have three picks as well. Uh, first one is actually, uh, I'm asking you all to please vote for my talks at JoidCon NYC. So a little self, yeah. shameless self-promotion <laughs> here. Um, I actually have three uh, that are kind of various different uh, different talks. One is I'm... Uh, have a talk out for lean development tactics for Android. Uh, the other name for it could possibly be staying sane and productive in a startup environment while you're building Android apps. How to stay sane, and that's a, a lot of tips from technical to mental to sleep and uh, health and, and so forth and how I've, how I've been able to 
uh, thrive and survive in, in a startup environment. Uh, the other talk is uh, driving user engagement 101 uh, or basically creating sticky type of users, how to get your users to coming back inside your, inside your apps, app re-engagement practices and so forth. A lot of the things that I help various different companies implement. And the last one is a talk I've given a few times, which is Android build variants. So if you're going to go to DroidCon NYC, please go to droidcon.nyc and vote for my talks. Uh, next one is, uh, next two are not really uh, Android-based, but they're something that I use every single day and I feel uh, I should bring up. One is the the Anker, and I could be pronouncing this totally wrong, Anker charging station. Uh, and it's a five-port USB uh, charging station that I bought off of Amazon, and it's probably the most heavily used thing in my house to the point where I'm going to be buying another one soon. Uh, it will charge your devices, iPads, uh, other tablets, uh, Android phones, uh, etc., uh, very quickly. Uh, and it's you know five ports, so you don't have to have wires all over your entire house uh, in various different locations. So it's very useful for keeping your devices charged, um, the ones that you use on a day-to-day basis. And the last thing is uh, a standing desk, and that's the $22 IKEA standing desk. A lot of people have probably heard about this, but I have one at my co-working space uh, that I've set up, and every time someone sees it, they ask where I, how I knew how to build it. So it's not as widely known as I thought. And this link shows you how you can, with just $22, uh, go to IKEA, pick up three different things, grab a couple screws that maybe you're laying around in your empty toolbox, uh, and put together a standing desk. I've been using this $22 standing desk for close to three and a half years at this point, uh, and I stand about 70% of the time every day. Uh, it's totally worth it. So if you're afraid of dropping 500 to $1,000 plus on a standing desk, check out this $22 standing desk option. I originally uh, got the inclination to start it because I wanted to check out a standing desk uh, and didn't want to spend a thousand dollars and decided that uh, if I liked it I would buy one and now three and a half years later I'm still using it and still haven't bought a thousand dollar desk so it's a it's a cheap alternative was it very difficult adjusting it for your height Don you know it actually (laughs) is and I actually have uh, the desks that I have are Ikea desks you know the regular desk ones and I can adjust the the height of the legs and so I bump up my desk probably about four inches higher than most people. Uh, and then I put the standing stuff on top of that. So it's actually perfect height for me. But if I had a regular like size desk uh, and I built the $22 standing desk, it would be probably about four inches too low. <laughs> it would be a sitting desk then. <laughs> At our Palo Alto office, they have those nice uh, electric ones that are going up and down um, uh, oh, yeah. you know, with the, with the buttons. I am not. I haven't uh, been able to convert myself to a standing desk, so I just have to go in and whatever desk I use, I just have to lower it to sitting. So. <laughs> <laughs> I am not standing today. Yeah. I'm sitting I'm down. I'm not standing, not but at least they're electronic, and I can lower it to sitting. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> All right, so you can find the show notes for this episode uh, at fragmentedpodcast.com/episodes/ten. If you have feedback or suggestions for us, as always please feel free to add your comments at the show notes. Alternatively, the best way is to just send a tweet to either Don or me on Twitter. And we also have Fragmented Cast as the Twitter handle for our podcast. So feel free to send in suggestions, feedback on that Twitter feed. Thank you again, Michael, so much for joining us today. Uh, it means a lot to both Don and I, we both are big fans of your talks and the stuff that you put out. If people want to reach out to you, though, what's the best way they can do that? You can find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Yogurt Earl on Twitter. 
Um, feel free to reach out uh, for anything Android related or even if you want to learn more about um, how we do Android-y things at Amex. Nice. I need to ask, what's the story behind Yogurt Earl? <laughs> yes, I get that question question a lot. So there's a thing called a Mondegreen, um, and you can look it up on, on Wikipedia. Maybe we'll put a show note in for it. But essentially it was a poem, and at the end of the poem, um, they said, laid them on the green. Um, and somebody thought it said, lady Mondegreen. So it was basically a mishearing of a uh, normal <laughs> sentence to sound like something else. Um, there's a game based on that called uh, Mad Gab. So there's a game called Mad Gab where it's essentially a bunch of Mondegreens, and there's a game based around that. So I had a friend mm -hmm. about 2004 who was trying to come up with his own. He's like, oh, I could come up with uh, one of these things that's in the game. And so his was, uh, and his name was Alan, his was You Go Girl. And somehow <laughs> You Go Girl sounded like Yogurt Earl. Okay. Um, so Yogurt Earl was the, was the, uh, what it sounded like. And somehow he started calling me Yogurt Earl. I'm not sure how he made that transition. Um, wow. And then it, it was about the time that the Gmail was coming out. And so I needed a unique handle on the internet um, that, uh, you know, wasn't used everywhere. And I could sign up with the same user ID everywhere. So I'm like, well, I'll try Yogurt Earl. And so about 10 years ago, that stuck. And so it started with Gmail and Twitter and, um, and, and so on. So funny. You are doomed now every time I see you. <laughs> okay, so if you want to get in touch with Don, how do we do that, Don? Uh, you can get in touch with me on Twitter at Don Felker. That's D-O-N-N-F-E-L-K-E-R. That's with two N's. Uh, or you can reach me at my website at donfelker.com. Excellent. And if people want to reach me, I'm Kaushik Gopal, K-A-U-S-H-I-K-G-O-P-A-L on Twitter. And my website is a little smaller. It's kaush.co. That's K-A-U-S-H dot C-O. Thank you all for listening and hope to see you next week.